0: This is Murder, She Told, true crime stories from Maine, New England, and Small Town, USA. I'm Kristen Zevey. You can connect with me at MurderSheTold.com or on Instagram at podcast. It was a gloomy afternoon in small town Madison, Maine. But despite being socked in by the clouds, there was an extra pep in Jim's step because Maine's harsh winter was finally lifting. It was a brisk 50 degrees, and he had shed his winter coat and was back in his ordinary uniform. He was heading down Main Street to one of his typical pickups, Madison Area Recycling Center. He was friendly with the sole employee and owner, Ray Levesque. They would sometimes chew the fat about local gossip in town, and Ray was still a little riled up about an upstart competitor who was undercutting prices. Jim pulled into the gravel driveway adjacent to Ray's house and drove to the back of his property, where the business building stood. Ray ran a bottle return business, and Jim was there for regular pickup. The lights were on and the heat was on, but there was no sign of Ray. He waited a few minutes, expecting him to appear. Growing impatient, Jim decided to pop in at the house to see if he was on the property before heading out, and what he discovered he would remember for the rest of his life. Peering through cupped hands into the kitchen window, Jim could see Ray on the floor, a pool of blood under his head. Ray was dead. Just west of Ray's modest two-bedroom home lay the historic downtown of Madison, a small working-class town in central Maine of about 4,000 people. It was a mill town built on the banks of the Kennebec River. Anson, its sister city, sat perched on the opposite banks. By 1994, the paper mill, Madison Paper, that supported the economy of the town was a shadow of its former self when it was a woolen mill employing nearly 1,500 people. The crown jewel of Madison wasn't the downtown though, but eight miles east on Wesserunset Lake, Lakewood Theater, once considered the Broadway of Maine. I spent a lot of summers at Lakewood and it's still a place I consider home. Reynal Levesque was a regular fixture around town. People passing by would often spot him on the front lawn of his family home at a picnic table, newspaper and beer in hand, smoking a cigarette and contemplating life. He would often wave to those he knew, but being situated on Route 148, the main drag that connected Madison to Skowhegan, meant that there was regular traffic and a lot of cars to wave to. To understand Ray at 55 at the time of his death, you have to understand his family, the most important thing in his life. Ray was born in Quebec Province, Canada, and grew up speaking French as his primary language. He could get by all right in English-speaking Maine, but would sometimes hodgepodge French and English words together in a single sentence. This is Julia, Ray's daughter.
1: So my parents both English and French and oftentimes would go from one to the other, even in one sentence. It would be half in English, half in French. And I grew up that way, so I guess I never even realized what was going on until a friend came over was having dinner with us and... My dad said a sentence, and I think it was something like, go get the butter out of the fridge. But it was half in English and half in French. And I got up, went and got it. And the friends there was just, I bugged it out of their head, like, what just happened? What did they say? What did he say to you? And then I realized that that's how I was, how they were speaking to me, because I understood it. I didn't realize that it was mixed.
0: He immigrated to the U.S. when he was pretty young striking out on his own and leaving his huge family of 12 siblings behind. He got married to his first wife, Irene Campeau, and had his first daughter, Linda. His wife died young and he remarried, finding love again with his second wife, Suzanne Roy. Susie's family was French-Canadian too, and she had a whole pile of siblings in the area. Together, they had a daughter, Julia, and it was the four of them that forged a life together in Madison. Ray and Susie both worked, she at the key bank in town, and he in a variety of roles. He was a talented welder, working both at the mill in Madison and as an entrepreneur in his own business, Ray's welding. He also worked in construction with Chinbro, traveling around the state. He would pick up odd jobs as well, becoming the caretaker of a local cemetery. He was also a bookkeeper for his brother-in-law, who lived right across the street from him in a trash disposal business. And finally, as an entrepreneur again with his own bottle return business called Madison Area Recycling Center. Ray was a tinkerer. He and Susie had modest means and would often fill any financial gaps with his ingenuity. Even growing up in Valdor, six hours northwest of Montreal in deep interior Canada, he would always find ways to make do.
1: Dad would like to watch hockey games, Canadian hockey. He talked about playing hockey with his siblings out on the ice out, you know, in Canada and they didn't have money for a puck, so it was kind of like horse poop or something that they used for a puck.
0: His mind was always abuzz with ways to improve the efficiency of things. His daughter Julia described his approach to his work as all in. There was an image of him printed in the morning sentinel, beaming with pride a year before his death, in front of one of his inventions. It was a giant lazy Susan that looked something like a conveyor belt at an airport luggage return, easily seven feet in diameter, that he used as a sorting table for the thousands of bottles he'd process. In a different life, I could imagine him as an engineer, always trying to create systems and processes to optimize. The whole household ran together as a well-oiled machine, often producing lots of tasty food. Julia, who he called Toots, was his gopher and sidekick, fetching him things and doing different tasks in the kitchen.
1: As soon as I could use a potato peeler or a carrot peeler, I was prepping for dinner because Mom had the steady banker's job where sometimes she came home later, and if Dad was home, me and I, he'd oftentimes make dinner.
0: The Levesque family had a huge vegetable garden in the backyard. And as they harvested in the warm summer months, they would commit the excess to cans that would pile up, filling shelf after shelf in their full basement. I can only imagine that canning was especially dear to Ray since it was, in fact, invented by the French and widely used to preserve foods in the cold and inhospitable province in which he grew up. Dad was a
1: great cook, and he could make something out of nothing. And he was always experimenting a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And he'd have a secret sauce, a secret something that he put in there and never really followed recipes. He had the ability to really make something yummy out of nothing. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. So there were times where we didn't have much in the kitchen, in the cupboard. So he would come out with something. I think that's where I kind of got the idea that you can really experiment and come out with something good.
0: Ray would send Julia out front to sell some of the excess cans to neighbors as they drove by on the busy road, giving her a taste for entrepreneurship and kept the mountain of cans downstairs to a reasonable volume. His siblings would sometimes visit from Canada and food was often the focal point of their gatherings. He would pull out all the stops and offer them a taste of Maine, cooking up fiery red lobsters. Julia would help make dozens of tortier pies, a classic French dish of ground meat and spices in a pie shell. They would give them out to neighbors, family, and friends around town. Julia remembered that he went moose hunting with a group of friends and relatives, and they managed to bring back two great big moose. It nearly filled their huge downstairs freezer with meat, and they ate on it for months, if not years. There were some hunting rifles stashed away in Julia's closet. But often, when Ray was on his own and had a deer in his sights, he couldn't take that shot.
1: I remember growing up, my dad, he would hunt, but he never really got anything. And one thing I remember him telling me that he would go hunting, I put that in quotes, and he would be sitting in a field or woods looking for deer, and then he would see them, but he didn't have the heart to, to shoot them, and he would end up just watching them and then let them go. I always thought that was touching because he had such a kind, kind heart about that.
0: Perhaps his own confrontations with death stayed his hand. He was a widow. His first wife, Irene, had died while they were married in their 20s. And his twin brother, Leo Levesque, had died when he was only a teenager. Some of his own experiences as a child, perhaps of witnessing cruelty or being a victim of it, may have heightened his sensitivity.
1: He talked about being sent away to boarding school. And again, he, he never really talked too deeply, too much about what happened or why. I know he he spent a lot of time serving mass and being an altar boy at church. And when I was growing up, he really didn't go to church. I went to church with my mom, and he um, he didn't have a problem with that at all. He would go on special occasions or holidays, but he would also say things alluding to bad things that happened in the church that he witnessed. So I think that affected him. Certainly the death of his twin was a car accident, and my dad mentioned something about they were always together. And then that one time, my dad wasn't in the car with him, so I don't know if he felt guilt or that maybe it could have been prevented, but he didn't really talk too much about it. Then um, the death of his first wife was a drowning. They suspected that she took her own life. Then my sister, when she was around 15, she ran away and she got pregnant and she was in trouble with the law and things that she did had a huge effect on him. And again, he didn't talk about it too much, but I know it bothered him. I remember them sitting around the table, and then I was shooed away. But again, the house was so small that I could hear some things. You know, the police had come because she had run away. They were looking for her. And then some other things that she did, getting into trouble and that. So even though she moved out, she lived in various places locally, and my mother and I would go visit her or, you know, bring her things that she needed, and it could be a volatile kind of relationship. The things that I witnessed probably had an effect on me being more straight and narrow, and I think my dad had high expectations of me because of Linda being such a rebel.
0: The friction between Linda and Ray was palpable, and Ray would sometimes turn to alcohol to cope.
1: I think those were big things in his life, and I think the alcohol was a way that he dealt with some of those demons and wasn't someone to really talk things through.
0: Ray could be a little volatile, a little vulgar. When he was frustrated with something, he would exclaim, oh, piss on it. When he was in good spirits, he could be the life of the party. But he could be blunt, direct, and insensitive. It was a mixed blessing for his family. His plain speech and transparency made him easy to understand.
1: My dad, he wasn't very complicated. He meant what he said. And um, what you see is what you get. That's the kind of person he was. If you showed disrespect, he would not have in it. And he had a way of just giving you a look without raising his voice or lifting a hand. We had a good relationship, but certainly growing up, I knew that I needed to choose my timing, say, asking for something to be able to do something or go somewhere or what mood he was in or if he had been drinking. I had to check the temperature in the room. <laughs> I knew that, and my mother knew this too, that first thing in the morning would be a good time to have a solid discussion. But sometimes if he he might be preoccupied with other things.
0: He loved to play devil's advocate with his young daughter. They would have fun little debates and Julia would take special delight in proving him wrong. Julia remembered how her father could be childlike and tease her mother. They had a light-hearted love for one another. He
1: was very loving towards my mother and playful. Like He would try to get a rise out of her by like teasing her about something. I remember them going with a group. like They would get tickets for New Year's Eve or something like that, and there would be a band playing somewhere. And... I remember them going and dancing and that type of thing. They did go to Lakewood Theater and um, went to a few of the shows there. That was not uncommon.
0: Though they would both work hard sharing the responsibilities of the household, Susie deferred to Ray for major decisions. He was the leader of their house, and though he demanded respect, he also gave it. Ray was well respected by the community as a hard worker, and he too respected the hard work that he saw in others he would rise early and seize the day. He was proud of his French-Canadian heritage, and he took to his endearing nickname, Frenchie, which was given to him by some of his English-speaking Yankee co-workers. Though he always honored his past, he was also proud of the fact that he had become a full United States citizen, earning his GED and passing the oral and written language and civics exams required for naturalization. He was always learning, always challenging himself to do better. He was proud of his accomplishments. Despite his modest beginnings, he had raised a family of two girls, made it in a new country learning a new language in the process, ran his own business, owned his own home, was financially stable and debt-free, and even took his family on the occasional vacation.
1: He had an amazing work ethic and respected others who had a good work ethic. He played hard and worked hard. So he liked to have a good time and really could be kind of the partier in the group. If he was having a good time, then everybody else was having a good time. And that's where sometimes the drinking was part of that. He was proud of his French Canadian heritage. He was proud that he became a naturalized citizen, got his GED. And I wouldn't say he was a proud person, but he was proud of his own accomplishments and the hard work it took to get the things that he did.
0: He had high expectations of himself and others, but that formality was offset by his charming mischief.
1: He liked to have fun and joke around. I remember when I was older, probably high school and college, coming over for Easter, he... Decided instead of doing Easter egg hunt, we were kind of old for that. So he took a $20 bill and put it in a plastic Easter egg. And we all had to go outside and he would hide it somewhere in the house. We came in and then we were looking and looking everywhere. He just was beaming because we had a hard time finding where it was. So things like that, you know, he he had fun with. I remember the one year it was inside the cuckoo clock and nobody had found it, or he was just happy that he could (laughs) fool us.
0: When I look through old photos of Ray Levesque, I'm struck by his wry smile, a glint in his eye. The same expression from his youthful face at the train station as a child followed him into his 50s, and his teasing and cleverness defined his personality. As Julia got older, She eventually graduated from Madison High School in 1985 and left home for college. She graduated from the University of New England in 1989 and moved soon thereafter to Pennsylvania to start a career in physical therapy. Ray was proud of his daughter. She remembered how proud he was when she got married to her husband, Tom, in 1993, to whom she's still married. They moved to Chester, New Hampshire and bought a house And in 1994, when they were still getting settled, they took a trip home to Madison for Easter weekend.
1: We had just been there two days before on Sunday because it was Easter Sunday. We made plans for him to come to New Hampshire the following weekend because he was going to help Tom do some electrical work in the house. And um, we had plans that he was coming and we were going to go out for breakfast. I distinctly remember standing by the door Hugging and saying goodbye and looking at him, saying, You stay out of trouble. And he looked at me and said, Oh, I will. I'll try. And that was it.
0: That Wednesday afternoon following Easter, Julia got a call from her mother.
1: Well, my mother called at work. I was working with patients. So I was paged to come to the office and she was on the phone and told me that we lost dad. And I I had to repeat it. I didn't understand. What do you mean we lost him? Where'd he go? Then she said, he was shot. He was shot in the house. And um, and then Tom came over. And then we went home, packed up a bunch of stuff, the cat, and drove two hours in the rain all the way up to Madison.
0: Shortly after the delivery man discovered Ray's body, he called for help. First to EMS, who responded right away then to the Madison Police Department, who were right behind them. They secured the scene and called the state police, who arrived that afternoon and started searching for clues. That April morning, Ray Levesque rose early, per usual, and he bid farewell to his wife around 7.30 a.m., who took the family car to town to work at Key Bank.
1: It was the middle of the week, so not super busy. First thing, I believe that he went up, turned on the heat, put the flag out, his open sign. Turned on the radio, turned on the lights. And then I think he came back down to the house to go to the bathroom. There was no bathroom up in the garage. And he had recently quit smoking. He was trying to keep himself occupied, his hands (laughs) and mouth occupied. So he was making himself some tea, like a big container of tea for the morning. And I think he was expecting the distributor and he was gonna head back up. So I don't think it was unusual. I think he came, went up and down various times throughout the day. There was a window in the bathroom that he could see up to the garage. So if there was a car that drove up, he would see it. You know, like if he went in to go to the bathroom, he'd do that, come out and go back up. So I don't think it was unusual that he was in the house.
0: The house was a single level home with two doors. One door faced the main road, and the other, which the family most commonly used to come and go, faced the driveway, which ran from the road past the right side of the house. When you open the driveway door, you find yourself in the Levesque kitchen. Dark oak cabinetry, beige laminate counters, and a black range, all resting on classic 80s linoleum flooring with tasteful French-inspired wallpaper. To the right of the entry door, and essentially part of the kitchen, was a nook that had a desk that was used for business. The floor plan was very open, and after walking through the kitchen, you'd find yourself in a small dining room, with an open living room to your left. The only bathroom in the house was just off that dining room.
1: Someone had to have an understanding of the business, the hours of the business, that it was up in the garage and not at the house that it's a cash business and maybe knew my parents' schedule, that my mother went off to work at a certain time, that my dad went out to the garage and opened it up at a certain time. I really think that someone wanted cash and went into the house thinking no one would be in there. Sometimes I wonder if it was somebody who had been in the house because that's where the desk was and that's what was rifled through and the cash box was in one of the drawers. It was opened and then it was empty. And I think my dad surprised the person by coming out of the bathroom, and they shot him, and then they got the heck out of there. I don't know what was in the cash box, but according to my mother, dad had it there, but didn't really use it for day-to-day. It was kind of a little bit of a backup. So it was a very small amount of cash, and dad had a good amount of cash in his pocket And that was still in his pocket. And I think the person wasn't in the house very long because dad's wallet was on the kitchen table and that wasn't moved. It just seems strange that someone was in there for whatever reason, but they were packing a gun. That's what's weird. If it was some random person trying to steal money, why were they packing a gun? Were they thinking they were going to kill somebody? I think it was very quick The whole interaction. My dad had no chance of doing anything, because I know for a fact there was a gun in the bedroom next to the bed, and there was no time to go get it for self-defense.
0: It's difficult to say the exact time of the crime, but police narrowed it down to the period between 7.30 a.m. and 10 a.m. Julia believes it occurred between 8.30 and 9.30 a.m. It's a brazen crime. It happened during daylight on a busy road with a constant flow of retail traffic. Not only that, but Madison High School was literally right next door. Directly across Route 148 was a trash disposal business run by Susie's brother, which had constant daily traffic as well. A gunshot going off in the middle of the morning next to a school in a busy area would seem likely to attract some attention.
1: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline.
0: On Wednesday night, the police presence was immense. Julia recalled her initial reactions with them. We weren't
1: allowed to get near my parents' house. The police were still there. The crimes unit was there. I remember the detectives coming over, and then we eventually went over to the house. And I didn't remember this, but Tom says that the body was still in there. We covered him with a sheet. I had Detective Jackie Terrio had us sitting in the living room and asking us questions. My mother, Tom, and I remember seeing the fingerprint dust all over the house. I don't remember seeing Dad's body, but they had to um, change the carpet. And Tom remembers going in there to remove carpet. But my Uncle Gary... I didn't remember all of that happening.
0: Her uncle, Gary, who was across the street, said, Everybody's hush-hush. Detectives are in here right now interrogating my kids. We don't know what happened. Ray was a friend, a brother-in-law, and a supporter. It's a sad, sad thing. The only thing we can do is make pots of coffee for the police, but it won't bring the man back. The police were interviewing everyone they could find. They went door-to-door, up and down Route 148, talking to neighbors. They even contacted school officials. On Thursday morning, police created a roadside checkpoint on Route 148 and handed out 500 flyers to motorists about the situation, seeking information. They took students out of class at Madison High School for private interviews. They even made long videotapes of the morning traffic, documenting all the vehicles that passed the business on Route 148. Finally, investigators got a critical lead. Three or four people had identified a man that was seen in the Levesque driveway, on foot, in the key time frame. They put a description together. Steve McCausland, State Police spokesman, said, We're looking for a pedestrian who was seen Wednesday morning between 7.30 and 10 a.m., standing in the driveway of Mr. Levesque's home. This man is wanted for questioning, but isn't a suspect. He may have valuable information. We believe that he was a pedestrian or possibly hitchhiking. The description they provided was white, 25 to 35 years old, 5'8", weighing about 160 pounds, with a slender to medium build. He had dark brown shoulder-length hair, a beard, and a mustache. He was wearing a dirty red or maroon baseball cap, a dark-colored jacket, in blue jeans. They later released a composite sketch produced by a state police identikit operator to the newspapers of the man's face. They appealed to the public for help. Bring us this man. Meanwhile, in Augusta, the state medical examiner's office performed an autopsy on the body and provided the obvious results to police. They later received one more key bit of information, There were some vehicles that were seen in the driveway that morning. McCausland said, Our investigation revealed at least four vehicles that were seen in either Levesque's driveway or across the street. We want to speak to those drivers. Three cars from the Levesque driveway were described as a blue pickup with a white panel on the side and a cap on the bed, a light-colored car, and a dark-colored car. Across the street, a maroon car was seen in the driveway, possibly turning around. While the police were busy talking to the town and chasing leads, the Levesque family was grieving. When Julia and Tom arrived in Madison the night of the murder, they stayed at a relative's vacation home with Suzanne, but things were moving quickly. After doing some cleanup, in just a few days, she was back in her childhood home, where her father had been lying dead on the living room floor. It was eerie. I asked Julia how her mom was handling the very public grieving process that was underway. She was
1: pretty brave, but I remember having to feel like I needed to protect her. I stayed there for a couple of weeks. Tom went back to New Hampshire and worked after a week or so. And I remember kind of saying to myself, we got to buck up here because we need to be doing stuff, like whether we're going out to get some groceries or something. Or, Doing some errands, which was really challenging.
0: Suzanne and Ray were a partnership. They relied on one another. When one half was missing, I asked Julia how the other one coped.
1: The mom just really tried to be busy and was frustrated that nothing was happening on the case from our perspective. And I think that really bothered her. At first, I think she struggled with the loss of the decision maker in the family. You know, she. Didn't know how to pump gas, so my husband, Tom, taught her. She was very worried about that, and making decisions with the house or if something broke down, like the water heater or something like that, it would really upset her, and we would drive up from New Hampshire, and and I think over time, she was able to adapt, and she was fairly resilient.
0: The town was grieving as well. Those that knew Ray were devastated. But the community as a whole was shook. One article from the time reflected on the last murder that had happened in Madison. It was fifty two years ago. This sort of thing just didn't happen.
1: The community was amazing. They kept dropping off tissues and coffee and more and more food. Sometimes my uncle Gary would be intercepting. So we didn't have to keep answering the door or facing people. I mean it was very kind.
0: Things weren't panning out for investigators, and by the Monday following the murder, the police presence had started to fade. The quotes from McCausland betray the hopelessness that the investigating team felt. We don't have a lot of leads on this case. A handful of people came forward Thursday, but we are looking for additional information. And most damning of all, he said, this murder occurred two weeks from yesterday and our investigators are frustrated with the small number of people who have come forward. Literally hundreds of people drove past that location, and yet only a dozen people have come to us. The Bangor Daily News and the Morning Sentinel ended their coverage on April 24th with an op-ed lamenting the changing times and using Ray's unsolved murder as an example of the violence that seems to be on the rise, changing small-town America. After that, an anniversary mention a year later, and then nothing for the next 27 years. It was bleak. Suzanne was the primary contact for the state police, and I asked Julia what she'd heard from them about the case.
1: She maybe spoke to them more frequently early on, and then it really decreased and dwindled every year or so. She would reach out at one point, I think probably was around 2000, that she reached out to them to have a sit-down. But, of course, they didn't have anything new. They would say, the newer cases are fresh, so we work on those. And Ray's case is never closed, but we work on it when we have time. Early on, you have a sense of hope, but we did. And then, as time went on, it was more hopelessness.
0: The police held all the cards. It was them alone who had all the interviews and investigating records. The Levesque family has patiently waited for 28 years. A couple of interesting theories emerged over that time, though. In May of 1995, less than three miles from Ray's home, another man was shot and killed in nearby Anson, at the real estate office he owned with his wife. 45-year-old Stanley Gorski was found dead by a customer inquiring about a truck. He'd been shot in the chest police looked into the possibility that Ray and Stanley's murders were connected. And after the press inquired about it, Steve McCausland said, we would certainly be remiss if we didn't look at the similarities in the two shootings. The night before the murder, Stanley had been arguing with his friend, Tom Meadows, while out with his family at Ken's Bowling Alley in Skowhegan. The argument escalated to the point that Tom, who had a volatile personality, made threats that he would kill Stanley continuing the arguments on the way home. The following day, his threats became reality when he killed Stanley at his office. The day after that, Tom then killed himself with what happened to be Stanley's gun, and the police considered the case to be closed as a murder-suicide. Considering the personal connection between Tom and his victim, it seems unlikely there was a connection to Ray. Another coincidence worth mentioning in this case is a weird connection to convicted murderer Jay Mercier. Ray's oldest daughter, Linda, had a child when she was just 16 in 1975. The father was 19-year-old Jay Mercier, another Madison local. If they had gotten married, that would have meant Ray's son-in-law was a killer. He had brutally murdered Rita St. Peter in 1980. In 1994, Jay would have been 38 years old when Ray was killed. His daughter by that time was a legal adult, and I'm not sure if there was any relationship between him and the Levesque family. The crime went unsolved until 2012, when DNA evidence linked Jay to the crime. He escaped justice for 32 years. Could he be involved with Ray's death? In 2004, 10 years after her husband's death, Suzanne was taken by a sudden and aggressive cancer at 63 years old, and her daughter was robbed again of the hopes to share with her mom the golden years of her retirement. She wished for her mother a long life living with her and Tom in the in-law suite they had built for her in their Brunswick home. They hoped to give something to her that was stripped away in a senseless tragedy.
1: Mom and dad were, just before he died, were really... Contemplating, thinking about their retirement and starting to travel a little bit, or they had taken a trip up to Campobello Island, and and they were starting to do that a little more because they were able to. And uh, you know, that's one of the sad things—they were starting to really settle into that. Dad had stopped smoking and had got his drinking under control, and really seemed to be getting it together. You know,
0: Julia's half sister Linda is gone too leaving Julia as the only remaining member of their nuclear family. She died at age 40 in the year 2000.
1: She eventually took her own life, and I think a huge part of that was my dad's murder and not being solved.
0: Despite the tragedy that has beset the Levesque family, they have been courageous, forging ahead, living in the present, and exemplifying Ray's excellent work ethic.
1: I know that he was very proud of me because I was the first one to go to college and then complete college and have a profession, so I know he was very proud of that and My father was a he was a man of not many words, <laughs> he didn't display a lot of emotion, but I knew that he loved me and that he wanted the best for me. I noticed his loss the most when there were milestones. In my family, say, having our children and when they reach different milestones, I think, well, I wonder what dad would have thought or dad would be proud, you know. Obviously, holidays and family gatherings, I feel his loss. My kids didn't grow up with a grandfather and learning things from him. He was such a hands-on person. I think they could have really enjoyed spending time with him. And now I'm turning 55 the year, the age he was when he died. And I think I have plenty more things I want to do and accomplish and see and think, wow, what a sad thing that he he died so young and wasn't able to enjoy later years.
0: Suzanne died without knowing the identity of her husband's killer. The mantle was then passed to Julia who has remained, to this day, the primary point of contact for the state police. In one week, it will be April 6th, marking the 28th anniversary of Ray's death. 28 years without answers. I asked Julia about some of her best memories with her father.
1: So when Tom and I um, got married, we decided to get married in Virginia and then we told our parents that we were going to get married and then it developed into both our sets of parents flying down to Virginia to meet us. And we had a weekend together. We got married at the courthouse and spent the weekend together. We went out to dinner and that. And, um, I just remember my dad being so happy and proud and it was just a big deal to him paying for dinner for us and ordering this fancy wine and that and, um, It was just a happy time.
0: Julia still makes tortier pies, the same ones that her father made that he was ever improving, ever reinventing. They are a wonderful reminder of his legacy, a proud first-generation immigrant bringing his hospitality and cuisine with him from French Canada, forging a rich life for himself and leaving behind an incredible family to honor his memory. (laughs) If you have any information about the murder of Ray Levesque, please call the Maine State Major Crimes Unit Central at 207-624-7143 or leave a tip at the link in the show notes. I want to thank you so much for listening. I'm so grateful that you chose to tune in and I couldn't be here without you. Thank you. If you want to support the show, there's a link in the show notes with options. Telling a friend about the show or leaving a review are some of the best ways to support an indie podcast. A detailed source listing can be found on the website at murdershetold.com. A very special thanks to Julia for reaching out and trusting me with her dad's story. Special thanks to Byron Willis for his research and writing support. If you have a story suggestion or a correction, feel free to reach out at hello at told.com. My only hope is that I've honored your stories by keeping the names of your family and friends alive. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder She Told. Thank you for listening.